open your Bibles, if you would, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We will read once again the first commandment, and then we will talk about what the commandment forbids. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Father, this word condemns us as idolaters, as people infected with secularism, which is the name atheism takes in our day. Lord, help us to have you for our God and not to look to other things to fulfill us or satisfy us or meet our needs. Deliver us from distraction now. Help me to speak worthily of you as the living and true God. Help us all to hear, to love you, and to shun the sins of atheism and idolatry and heresy. We pray these things in the name of your Son, the living and true God. Amen. We saw last time that the first commandment is fundamentally about relationship. It is about having God for our God. You shall have no other gods but me. That is positively stated. You shall have me for your God. Well, the, What does the first commandment forbid? Looked at negatively, the commandment forbids the sins of atheism and idolatry, the sins of having no God or a false God. It also forbids heresy, a faulty version of the true God. It demands our total commitment to and love for our God. So if we look first at the sin of atheism, you shall not have no God. We are called on to have a God. Now, there are comparatively few overt atheists in the world. But another way to phrase this command is to say, you shall not be secular. As I said, that's the name that atheism tends to take in our world. Secularism comes from the Latin word secula, relating to this age. That's what a seculum is, just an age or a period of time. Thus the motto on the back of the dollar bill, Novus Ordo Seclorum, or of the secular, a new order of the ages. That's the claim on the dollar bill. But to be secular essentially is to say, Whatever I want, whatever I need, whatever is required for human flourishing is available within the closed horizon of this world. We've talked before about the, uh, James Bond. He's not a great theologian, but he called one of his pictures, The World is Not Enough. And in that, Bond was correct. The world is not enough. Secularism posits the opposite and says, No. The world is enough. 80 years, 90 years, moderate portion of the good things of this life, that's all anyone not only could reasonably expect, but all that the human person could need. Into that constructed edifice of secularism comes the lightning bolt of the revelation of God and says, 
Thou shalt have no other gods. Meaning, you shall not go without God and say, I don't need God. I'm fine. The world is fine. The world is hospitable enough for me. It's ultimately the sin of denying the transcendent, of thinking that one's own little voice is enough. You're familiar, no doubt, with Sheila, a woman interviewed by the sociologists who said, yes, I practice Sheilaism, just my own little voice. From outside the world comes this word of God, God literally descending in fire on Sinai and saying, you must have a God. You need a word from beyond the world in order even to be human. Now Moses has already told us that, not in terms of the imperative, but in terms of the indicative in the creation story. God created man in his own image, and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And what's the next sentence? Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. In terms of the order of creation, man does not exist without a word from God. There is no secular man, not at the beginning of time, nor afterwards. Adam comes into existence, and as he awakes in this world, the voice of God sounds in his ears, blessing him and giving him a mission statement. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, and so on. God says it in a different way here in Exodus 20. It's the same concept. You must have a God. You must not say that you can live without the word from outside, the word from beyond the world. You can't. And if you try, you will end up denying and destroying your own humanity. Well, that, of course, is what the secular world all around us is doing. And the nations that claim to be most advanced in secularism are the nations that also claim we murder all Down syndrome children before they're ever born. We've eliminated Down syndrome by murdering handicapped people. That is what happens when you try to have no God. So under this heading of atheism comes not just theoretical atheism, profession of faith that says there is no God the fool's profession of faith I might add, but also comes the don't care kind of atheism, doesn't matter to me whether God exists what we call secularism and what's most common in the church among professing Christians practical atheism living as though God doesn't matter as though the word from beyond the world has not addressed us, as though God has nothing to say about my behavior in this situation or that situation. Practical atheism is when you step out in sin, as if you didn't care what God thought or what God said. That sin 
is forbidden. To have, you shall have no other gods before me means you must have me for your God. You may not try to go without a deity. Now, of course, throughout most of history, up until the present day, when perhaps half the world's population identifies as secular in some sense, prior to that time, throughout human history, the problem was not so much having no God, by and large, as having a false God. Everyone had a God, had some form of the transcendent to which they appealed, and they serve the God of their time and their place. Whether that's Baal and Ashtoreth in the Canaan of the 10th, 12th century BC that Israel entered, or whether that was the Zeus and Athena and the other gods of the Hellenistic world in the days of Paul and Silas in the New Testament, or what have you. But this commandment forbids that as well. That is, the first commandment is not just a command to be religious. This is not, thou shalt have some form of the transcendent. It's more than that. This is not the Bronze Age version of Dwight Eisenhower's famous quip, our government makes no sense unless it is founded on a deeply felt religious faith, and I don't care what it is. Yes, Ike really said that. I don't care what it is. That is not what God said. He didn't just say, thou shalt be like the Athenians, very religious. You have to have a specific God. The Bible mocks external external items of worship with the pejorative term idol, which literally means little seen thing. To call it a seen thing is a joke in biblical terms because for something to be seen means that it can't be divine. It's a contradiction in terms to say this thing is visible, this thing is my God. And so the Bible mocks them as idols. Someone that the Bible would call an idol worshiper would not call himself an idol worshiper. I don't worship little seen things. I worship the great Artemis. I worship the majestic Baal, the cloud rider. That's what they would say. But God says, no, you worship little seen things. You may not have an idol at all. But in particular, in these days, the threat of idolatry is not so much from little seen things, though people are still perfectly capable of worshiping their stuff or their money or other seen things, But primarily we erect idols in our heart. Worship personal peace and affluence, and we go off on anybody who threatens that. We worship the God within. Our latent powers and abilities as human beings. I remember asking our next door neighbor a few years ago, while she was several houses down, do you believe in God? And she said, I believe in the power of concerted human action. Well, that's exactly what this commandment forbids. Many people worship the collective, the state, or some kind of ideology that promises peace on earth. Liberalism, Marxism, conservatism, this-ism, or that-ism. 
this particular set of policies will make the world over again into a good place. The thing to which we look for satisfaction and fulfillment is functionally our God. And yes, sad to say, many people live for the weekend, for the television show, for the new clothes, for the trip, for the car, the house, the boat, the Disneyland vacation, for this thing or that thing, for buying the newest collectible in their series of things that they're collecting, for spending money or for saving money. All of these can be and are idols to us. And there, you know, I say, what is the definition of a false god or of a god in general? That thing to which you look for satisfaction and fulfillment. Now there are people out there who will tell you, I've stopped looking for satisfaction and fulfillment. The world is a nasty place, no satisfaction and fulfillment to be had. Most of those people are mad at whatever God didn't deliver for them. They will tell you, I'm not looking for it anymore. But they're angry about that. They wish that they had that satisfaction and fulfillment. And so their God becomes their anger, their bitterness, their outrage at whatever it is they blame, which is ultimately God, for depriving them of that fulfillment. Most people, of course, will admit verbally that their functional God won't make them happy. Will stuff make you happy? Almost everyone is able to tell you, no, stuff won't make me happy. Almost everyone is able to say, yeah, buying the dream home in the dream neighborhood won't make me permanently happy. But few indeed of us are able to live in light of that reality. Many or most people functionally make porn, drugs, grandchildren, sports, time off, money, etc. into their God and think that it will give them satisfaction. The better thing you adopt as an idol, the more damage it will do. You can make an idol out of pleasure, You can make an idol out of money. Those things are moderately good, and they will do moderate damage. You can make an idol out of something really good, though, like the church, the Bible, family, and you can do even more damage by worshiping those things. The mafia supposedly worships the god of family. It's all for la familia. Every murder, every shady deal, it's all to advance the family's position. In our circles, fidelity to Christian doctrine, better understanding, greater cerebral knowledge of what's in the book. That can be our idol. And we can achieve standing in various circles based on our ability to discourse fluently about the Word of God. That's a good idol, so to speak. That's the corruption of a powerful good thing. And it can do a lot of damage. Whole churches have been built on that ability to talk fluently about biblical things. And some of those churches are rotten at the core. So what is the commandment saying? It says don't do that. Don't worship these idols. Don't have 
a wrong, a false, a faulty God at all. These things can't satisfy, won't satisfy, don't satisfy. You are made for God. I am already Yahweh your God. And therefore, to turn aside from Him is to turn aside from everything you could possibly need. It's easy to say this. It's hard to remember when temptation comes. God says, you're made for me. I am your God. Don't worship a false God. And don't give me a makeover that changes who I am. You have to know Him as He truly is. So, heresy is a major way to break this commandment. That is, to redefine the true God by changing some key characteristic of Him into its opposite. Making Him into something that He isn't, or wasn't, or won't be. So heresy, at the most basic level, is incorrect statements or beliefs about God. God finds this very offensive. This is a little bit of a scary example, but imagine that I had a habit of referring to my wife as the 200-pound boss. If I were to say, you're just in conversation with me, and I drop, well, a 200-pound boss says we're actually going to do That would be a definition or an example of heresy. I am ascribing to her something that she isn't. And that is extraordinarily offensive. All of us hate to be lied about. That's why God says no to heresy. Mangling doctrine is a sin. And especially doing it delivery deliberately, but even doing it out of ignorance. Thus, it's become fashionable in many Christian circles to say things like, God suffers along with you. God feels your pain. Or even, God would have helped if he could, but he can't. He's just like you, wishing he could do something to stop the war in Ukraine. Or name it. This is heresy. Lying about God, ascribing to Him something that He isn't. If you don't know God as infinite, eternal, unchangeable, omnipotent, omniscient, the hearer of prayer, the doer only of good, the one who permits evil but never causes evil, you don't know God. Ignorance is still a sin especially when stubbornly persisted in, when you're informed, no, that's not what the Bible says. And you double down and say, that's what I believe about God. I don't care what the Bible says. I refuse to believe in any God that could stop this war and doesn't. I refuse to believe in any God who allows children to starve in Africa. If you refuse that, if you double down on your ignorance, you are having a God besides God. You are trying to make him over into your image. 
We are called to know him. That's what this commandment calls us to do, as we said last time. To have him as our God means knowing him and committing to him. And lying about him, ascribing to him things that he isn't, is offensive to him. We'll talk more about that next week with the second commandment against graven images. Every graven image is a lie about God. It is a form of heresy. So more common even than theoretical heresy, and that's common. If you go to any theology book section and just open a random theology book, you're likely to find heresy from first to last inside it. But even more common than that theoretical heresy is the sins of practical heresy, which we can sum up as pride and despair. Despair is the negative side of this practical heresy. It's the idea that not even God can help me. The sinner in his bipolar disorder goes way, way up into pride, is in the manic phase, or he crashes way, way down into despair, the depressive phase. Either way, he says, I don't need God. Or, God is not capable of helping me in the despairing phase. Or in the proud phase, I don't need God to help me. I can make it on my own. The sin of despair is a lie about God. I'm so sunk in sin. I'm so given over to this ungodly thing. Not even God could help me. I'm just going to deal with this sin For the rest of my life. I'm just going to have to live here. Because. Yeah God helps with other sins. God maybe helps other people. But he doesn't help me. That's despair. Satan encourages this sin. He comes to you and says. Oh you did that. Oh if your church knew about that. They'd kick you right to the curb. You would be gone. That's a lie. That's despair. And the contrary lie is pride. The first, most common, most frequent violation of the first commandment. Instead of having God for your God, you take yourself, put yourself on the pedestal and make yourself your God. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I can do all things through self that strengthens me. I can make it. I am brave enough, strong enough, good enough, powerful enough, nice enough. I deserve this, that, and the other. Don't give in to the sin of pride. You can manifest pride in so many different ways. We don't have time to talk about all of them, but we tend to manifest it in saying, I don't need to guard myself against that sin. Well, yes, I've fallen into it dozens of times, but that just means I I know it very well, and it won't get me again. Or pride can say, I'm better than that. My friend... My acquaintance, my coworker, my boss is engaged in some incredibly dumb behavior right now. Man, I feel superior as I look at this person 
do this incredibly entertainingly, hilariously stupid thing. What an amazing fact that I'm better than that, that I would never do that. And there are many, many, many other ways in which pride manifests itself. But looking down on others or refusing to suspect yourself are two major ways in which we Christian people make ourselves God and trust in unlawful means. Finally, this command requires us to not commit half-heartedly. This, again, is something we like to do. Well, yes, God is my God. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm listening. And when the going gets tough, I know where I'll go. I'll go to God. But when times are good, money will be my God. Pleasure will be my God. Relationships will be my God. I will live to find a girlfriend. I will live to find a boyfriend. I will live to get that promotion, to get that raise, to get into that field, to get that degree. And then if things get tough, Jesus is my backup. I have somewhere to go, a bolt hole. No, you cannot half have God for yours and half not have him for yours. You can't have one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. As George MacDonald said, this or that of the devil in your heart or pocketbook. It doesn't work that way. How do you partially commit to God? Well, you can do it by keeping your options open. I'm a member of this church with the right to leave at any time. I'm a Christian with the right to bail out if I don't like it. I want to get off the airplane if it starts heading into some turbulence. We like this idea that my options are open. I'm not locked in. I can leave if I need to. But the law is an all or nothing proposition. If you're in, you're in. If God is your God, he has to be your God in every area. Not, I worship Jesus on Sundays, work Monday through Friday, and pleasure on Saturday. Three gods, three different parts of the week, works out very well. It doesn't work at all, brothers and sisters. So this command requires commitment. That commitment is not shown by never sinning. We all sin. We all commit idolatry. We all commit practical atheism. But commitment is shown by taking your sin to God and asking Him to deal with it. Don't tell me whether somebody sins. What do they do with their sin? First Kings sums it up. The heart of Asa was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days, says 1 Kings 15. Right? Asa kept the first commandment. Now the narrative tells us about various sins in which he engaged. He oppressed some of the people. He turned to the physicians and not to God. And yet his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord all his days. The king before him or beside him in Israel Abijam, the narrator says this, Abijam walked in all the sins of his father which he had committed before him. His heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. 
Now, we know that David murdered, that David committed adultery, that David saw horrible consequences in his family for the rest of his life from those sins. And yet, the Bible tells us that his heart was wholly devoted to the Lord his God. That doesn't mean that he never sinned. It means that he dealt with his sin. So this first commandment condemns us and says, you've worshipped little seen things. You've engaged in practical atheism, idolatry, heresy, pride, despair, and all the rest of it. And we have. And we know that we have. But the fact that we've committed these sins doesn't mean that God now says, so that's it. Next stop, hell. Instead, it means that we need to repent and keep turning away from these sins because they're going to keep coming up. A partial commitment to God means you try to hide your sin from Him, from yourself, from your brothers and sisters. A full commitment to God means that you admit your sin to Him, to yourself, to your brothers and sisters. This command, like all the others, requires repentance. Tell the truth when you worship another God. When you start checking your bank balance and saying, boy, that gives me a lot of satisfaction. I feel really good about what's in there. I could almost live for that feeling. You stop and say, no. No, that's not what I live for. And if that bank balance evaporates tomorrow, my God has not evaporated tomorrow. Because money isn't my God. My God is in heaven and nothing can make him evaporate. The first commandment requires repentance. Returning to the Lord when we go after other gods. And when you, as you return to him, as you repent, you will get better at making him your God all the time, looking to him for satisfaction and fulfillment all the time. In Christ, God is your God. He's committed to you. Commit to him. Let's pray. Father, we know that at various times and ways we have turned away from you. We have sought satisfaction and fulfillment in the things of this world. We've engaged in the sinner's bipolar disorder of pride and despair. We've done things that clearly indicate that you were not our God at the time we did them, that we were worshiping something else and looking to that thing to fulfill us. Father, forgive us. Cleanse our hearts. Establish us by faith. Make us look like Jesus and love like Jesus. We praise you that he always perfectly had no other gods before you. That he glorified your name. And that in him, we too are forgiven and empowered to have no gods before you. Help us to live in your sight this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.